Today's Old Testament reading comes from Jeremiah 3, verses 11 to 19. The Lord said to me, Faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. Go, proclaim this message toward the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days, when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, people will no longer say, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the people of Judah will join the people of Israel, and together they will come from a northern land to the land I gave your ancestors as an inheritance. I myself said, how gladly would I treat you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. This is the word of the Lord. We have two New Testament lessons today. The first of them is from Hebrews chapter 2, and the second from Matthew chapter 6. These are both printed in your bulletin. I invite you to follow along. Hebrews 2, beginning with verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels, you crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. 
both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then from Matthew chapter 6. And when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So about 10 years ago, I was in the middle of uh, planting a new church in America with a friend and with a bunch of friends, really. And because it was a a new church, we could kind of get away with different things that you couldn't always get away with. Sometimes we tried different things. On one particular Sunday, about 10 years ago, um, we pastors decided we would invite up to the front, right in the middle of the service, anybody that wanted to come up and be prayed for and have the elders uh, put their hands on them and we would anoint them with oil and pray for their healing. Uh, And it was a lovely experience. We happened to be preaching through James. And James says to do that, so we figured we'd better do it. Now, at that time, uh, my son Deacon was maybe five or six years old. And after the service, you know, he noticed this wasn't like the normal service, right? (laughs) So after the service, he said, Papa, uh, what were you doing with those people in the middle of the service? I said, well, you know, we were praying for their healing and we anointed them with oil. And Deacon said, are they going to become kings? All he knew at that point about being anointed with oil is that in the Middle Ages, in Europe, 
you know, when a king was ascending the throne or a queen was coronated, the priests would put the oil on their head and consecrate them so that they could take the throne. Uh, You know, but I said, son, this is America. We don't have kings and queens. But then one of my elders overheard this, this funny conversation. He walked up and he said, preacher, you know, your boy's right. They are going to become kings and queens. When we pray the Our Father, usually, Bemi will do this later on, she's done with her prayers of the people, and then she'll say something like, and as our Lord Jesus has taught us, we pray together, Our Father who art in heaven, right? That's kind of the introduction. But I learned that the historic Christian liturgy starts off the prayer a little bit different. This is what the classic liturgy says, right before the prayer. And now, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to say, our Father. We are bold to say, our Father. Why is it bold to say, our Father? It's bold to say, our Father, because we are doing something daring and even disruptive when we pray like this. When we pray our Father, we are declaring a bunch of things, but let's just focus on two of them from our passage in Hebrews chapter 2. When we pray our Father, we're declaring, one, our restoration to sovereignty, and two, our restoration to sonship. Our restoration to sovereignty and our restoration to sonship. So let's look at this passage, Hebrews chapter 2, together. How can I possibly say that Deacon was right? How can my elder say that he was right? These men and women are going to become kings and queens. Well, as we look at this text from Hebrews, you notice, first of all, that in verse 6, the writer quotes the Old Testament. He's here quoting Psalm number 8. And this psalm is a psalm that's full of wonder. Wonder that God is so sovereign. Wonder that God has made the world with such authority and splendor and power. And immediately when you contemplate the wonder of God's majesty and creation, his sovereignty and his rule, the immediate question then in the song is, verse 7, or rather, yeah, verse 6, what is mankind, what are we, that you would have any thought of us whatsoever? We are so small compared to God. And yet the the song goes on, doesn't it? You've not only thought of us and cared for us, but are you ready for this? You've crowned us with glory and honor, and you have put the whole creation under our feet. Do you hear like the, the terrified marvel of the psalmist as he sings this? It's like, what were you thinking, Lord? Are you sure that you want us, human beings, to govern the world? If I were you, I wouldn't even waste a minute thinking about us. Hebrews chapter 2 says that we were meant for sovereignty, under, to be sure, the sovereign king, the Lord of all. God, for some reason, loves to take authority and to delegate it. And for some reason, God is determined to show his supreme sovereignty through human rule over creation. 
But as Paul writes in Romans, we have fallen so far, so far from the glory of God. We've abdicated our position at the head of creation. But God is determined to set things straight. God comes to the rescue in Jesus. The sovereign son takes the name Jesus, God saves, and he takes our frail human flesh, and he comes in and he picks up where Adam and Eve left off and failed, restoring rule. So far, none of this is is that scandalous, right? The son is the king. Uh, We know this and confessed it. Christ is king. He came, lived, died, rose, ascended, and sat back down at the throne of glory. He's coming again soon. This is standard stuff, right? But the scandalous part comes here. Hebrews 2 hits on this. He doesn't simply want to take the throne of glory for himself, but he also wants to, verse 10, bring many sons and daughters to glory. I wonder if you've read that before. You thought, oh, he brings many sons and daughters to glory. That's just a fancy Bible way of saying Jesus died for our sins and we get to go to heaven when we die. That's true. But when you read it in the context of Hebrews 2, you see what's happening, right? When Jesus brings daughters and sons to glory, what's he doing? He's restoring to them their sovereign rule under his supreme sovereignty. This restoration of rule has always been God's plan for the redemption of humanity. This was the plan from the beginning before there was sin. Rule the earth, Adam and Eve, and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It was God's plan when he chose Israel as firstborn son. He wants to restore rule through his people. And so Moses has to go up to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, Israel is Yahweh's firstborn son. It's like as if Pharaoh, or Moses is saying to Pharaoh, are you really going to mess with God's firstborn son? They were not made for slavery. They were not even made for mere freedom. My firstborn son, Israel, is meant to become a kingdom of priests to reign with me on the earth. Unless you play the harp now or hope to play it someday, Rest assured that the goal of human life is not to go to heaven and take harp lessons and play that harp for eternity while you sit on a cloud. As serene and peaceful as that sounds, perhaps, to you. No, God has much more in mind for us. That is, for us to judge the angels and to rule creation. He wants humans to do this. And Hebrews 2 tells us that he's got the first one and the best one in Jesus, the incarnate son. But now in Jesus, he plans to restore us to our true humanity so that then he can restore true humanity to its original destiny, to reign with Jesus and to serve the world as queens and as kings. I mentioned the oil of the anointing. In the Bible, the oil of anointing is a symbol also of the Holy Spirit. It drips down our heads, and the symbolism is that we are healed 
from our self-inflicted wounds brought on by our sin and our rebellion and were made whole by pure kindness and grace. And when we're whole, we'll reign with Jesus Christ in and with him. The writer says, hey, look, it's clear, verse 8, second part of it, (coughs) at present, we do not see everything subject to human beings. But we do see Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. With all, with the death of, uh, of the prince, of the, the Duke of Edinburgh, uh, we've all been thinking about royalty maybe in the last week or two. What do you think it's like to be born a prince or a princess and to know that you are next in line for the throne? Knowing that one day the oil is going to go on your head and as it drips down, ready or not, you are reigning now over a realm the writer of Hebrews, and indeed the whole Bible wants to tell us that actually every one of you that belongs to Jesus Christ is just this, a princess or a prince on your way to becoming queen, to becoming king. And every time that we pray our Father, we are boldly declaring that we in the Son are raised with him and seated with King Jesus at the Father's right hand where all authority in heaven on earth has been given to him. And soon we'll be healed and the whole creation will know it, that we're the children of God. They're groaning for the day when it's obvious that we belong to the Son, that we're children of God, and one day they'll know it. The rabbi's right, we're calling this sermon, the rabbi's right is to call God Father and to ask for and to receive the kingdom. And Jesus, by grace, invites us to pray our Father. And in him, by pure grace, the rabbi's right becomes our right. Not to just pray our Father, but in Jesus, to sit with him and one day to fully reign in him. It's a revolutionary prayer. We are restored to sovereignty in the Son, who is the supreme sovereign. So that's the first thing, our restoration to sovereignty in the Son. The second daring thing that we pray in praying our Father is we declare our restoration to sonship, to sonship, our Father. So we say this every week, and it's good, we should say it every week. But we say it so often that, you know, we could be forgiven for missing all these, impl- these royal reigning implications that we just discovered. But I'll bet that we've pretty much even forgotten the obvious meaning of our Father. And it's time to remember. Uh, Wesley Hill points out that, okay, there's 32 books in the Old Testament, about half a million words. Any guesses how many times God is referred to as Father in the Old Testament scriptures? Just 15 times, 15 times. And you know, that's not nothing, right? Like, that's significant. But by the time the, the coming of Christ happens and the New Testament scriptures begin to unfold, 
just by the time we're done with the four Gospels at the beginning of our New Testaments, God is called Father 170 times. 170 times. It's like Jesus is saying, you must never forget this. You must never forget the radical significance of being able to call God your Father. As we saw last week, people tend to worry about the the presumptuousness of prayer. But the message of Jesus is that we need to march right into the Father's presence. And despite the fact that he sits on the throne of the universe, we need to come and we need to ask for what we desire with all boldness. And that's what we're doing when we say, our Father. Think of the audacity again. Our Father. Wait, whose Father? Your Father? You're kidding, right? You're serious? You're calling the maker of billions of galaxies, the one who sustains all microbiological life, I just made up a science word there. You're calling this sovereign your father? Are you sure? Where do you get this audacity? And the answer is in and with the son, the Lord Jesus, who asks his father for literally everything and who insists that his own disciples, that's us, must come to him with the same courage. Friends, the Christian life, as we've been seeing during Lent and now in this prayer, is discipleship. Discipleship is apprenticeship to Jesus. And the Father wants to bring many daughters and sons to glory. And so we need to learn to tag along with Jesus as he takes us from one degree of glory to the next. Someone has said that we don't take Jesus with us wherever we go. Rather, the opposite. Jesus takes us with him everywhere that he goes. We are the tag-alongs. And and this is so vital because we learn to pray with Jesus, our Father, and we're being apprenticed into the family, brought up as if we were the natural sons and daughters. You know, it's like we were, the reason we have to keep praying our Father and learn how to pray it with Jesus is it's like we were orphans. And we've now been adopted into a new family. But like many orphans that are adopted, we have real trouble, don't we? Believing deep in our hearts that we're really part of this family, that we actually belong, that our brothers and sisters really think of us as legitimate siblings alongside of them, that our parents love us as much as their natural-born children. And so praying our Father is how our hearts become bit by bit, prayer by prayer, convinced that the impossible could really be true. That though we were orphans, we're now adopted sons and daughters. Though we were homeless, we now live in the palace with the king. Though we are just humans, God is not only mindful of us, but tenderly cares for us. And though we have no natural right to be and to claim to be sons and daughters, the real, true, natural, firstborn son, Jesus, verse 11, is not ashamed to call us sisters and brothers. In fact, Jesus, verse 13, marches right into his father's presence, and he says, here I am, father, and all of your children I've brought with me. 
when Jesus returns to heaven after his resurrection, he brings us with him, orphaned but restored daughters and sons. And he says to his father, Father, I haven't lost one, not a single one of the precious children that you've sent me to bring home. What a marvel. God our Father is not ashamed to have us bear the family name, and Jesus the Son is not ashamed to declare that we are his little brothers and sisters. This is radical intimacy. This is radical recognition of us. This is restoration to sonship, to daughterhood. But all of this intimacy is meant to do something else in us, and that is to train us in trust, isn't it? To train us in trust. Think of Jesus and his, our Father, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He asks his Father, as he's facing the cross, he asks his Father, is there some other way that I could bring many sons and daughters to glory? Some other way that doesn't have to do with this cursed death on the cross. Stop and think about that for a second. It has been their plan for eternity. They, they made it themselves together. And now the moment has come. You might ask, what kind of son asks for a change of plans at the last minute in this situation? But the answer is, what kind of son asks? A true son. And then in his prayers, he wrestles with this intimate communion with his father. Jesus, once again, as the true son, he hears the reassurance of his father's love. He recommits to the path that brought him first from heaven down to earth, now brought him into Jerusalem on a donkey. And by the time on Calvary that he breathes his last, having lived perfectly, having faced death with absolute trust in his father, what does he say to his father finally in his last breath? Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last. Friends, our apprenticeship in prayer, the Our Father, is designed to bring us to our last breath with a heart that trusts the Father's love and care so much that we can say at our life's end, Father, into your hands, I trust you so much. And so into your hands, I commit my very spirit. Now bring me, your daughter, your son, to glory. Next time that you're sick, maybe you're sick in body, soul, or spirit, give me a call. I'll get Sam, or I'll get Bemi, or one of our elders, and we'll grab some oil. We'll come to you, and we'll put our hands on you, and we'll pray for you, and we'll anoint you with oil and pray for your healing. And then we'll pray the Our Father together. We'll pray the Our Father together. And as we do that, we will be reminded that you are being restored to sonship in the Son. Because you are going to be queens and kings under Christ Jesus, the King of Kings. Do you dare to pray the Our Father if all this is true? It's stunning, isn't it? 
Oh, Lord, the only thing I can think of to say is, Oh, Lord, teach us to pray. Uh, Father, we do pray that you would be so generous to teach us to pray, and that bit by bit, we as sons and daughters would grow up into our elder brother and his maturity and learn to pray with great intimacy and boldness to anticipate uh, reigning and ruling with him and to trust him all the way up until our final breath. Help us to do that and teach us to pray. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.